Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Daniel Budai, the founder and CEO of Budai Media, a retention marketing agency that specializes in increasing lifetime value for brands' customers. On this episode, Daniel and I talk about the value and loyalty programs, different practices to increase lifetime value, setting achievable milestones and goals, and much more. Here's our interview now. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. I'm happy to be here. And yeah, I'm just super happy to be in this podcast. Very happy to have you. So first off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your marketing agency and company, Budai Media? Yeah, sure. So we are an e-commerce retention marketing agency. And uh, we started out in uh, 2018, now five years ago. Basically, we want to help e-commerce businesses grow by increasing the lifetime value of their customers, helping them to have more uh, returning customers because many of them, they they don't have that. They already have a customer base, but customers, they don't want to come back. And uh, that's how we help them. And so your emphasis is on retention marketing more than anything else. So what are some of the specific practices that you focus on for companies to raise that lifetime value? Sure. So, you know, it really depends on the level where they are. We work with uh, even with a few startups up to uh, actually now. So up to eight, even nine figures. Sometimes actually one of my team members just told me today we audited the Fortune 500 company and I'm very happy for that. So we try to grab the attention of bigger companies as well think we are getting better and better with that. Obviously, those, those folks, they need very different things. But in general, uh, we usually start with email marketing because the ROI is still the best with email marketing. And uh, once it's nailed, then uh, we add other channels like SMS marketing, uh, even physical mail, push notifications. We set up a loyalty program and we take care of the creative side, but also the technical side. And when it comes to a larger brand, usually uh, where they struggle is really syncing the different channels, sometimes even simplifying things. Uh, They have two complex structures, so we help them with uh, those. No, that's great. I'm really interested in the loyalty program and the referral program. How exactly does that work? Sure. So uh, loyalty is a a great thing. I mean, the money is there. Unfortunately, many brands, they, uh, they think that if they install a loyalty app, it will do the work. They just expect that it's a plug-in and play kind of thing and you just plug it in and it will make money. This couldn't be farther from the truth because a loyalty program is something where you really need a good strategy. So it's not just setting up something, sending some messages and wonderfully, you know, it will make money. No, you you need a solid strategy for a loyalty program and I'm pretty sure everyone can name a few loyalty programs and, and subscriptions that you really like and it really stands out. And it's probably not a 10% coupon code uh, for your loyalty because that's not too creative, right? So I think we can learn a lot from large brands. What they do, they uh, incentivize people to buy more. They reward that behavior if you buy more. You can get uh, points, you can get those points. Uh, and and you can use them later. But usually big brands do much more than that. So one example I really like is uh, Nike. So for example, Nike, they reward the behavior that leads to purchase. So prime example, 
they want you to run more. They have a running app and people they can compete. I never used the app to be honest, but I can imagine how this works. So people they compete and and athletes they are usually competitive. So who runs faster, who runs more, and then they get more and more points and then they can uh, try new collections of Nike and and all of that. So they reward not the purchase directly, but the behavior that leads to purchase which is running and it re- leads to more consumption. So that's something that not many brands do. I think everyone can really think about it, how to do it better. Another thing is a referral program, which is part of loyalty. So you want to reward people who refer your brand to others. And uh, you want to reward the person who refer, but also the new person who got referred. That's a big one as well. One more tip here. So you can make it a competition as well. So you can make a leaderboard. Everyone gets points for a referral and people, they can see the public leaderboard where they are. And if they are on the top, they can get some huge reward. Like, I don't know, maybe you get new car for them if you have the money for that. But so, smaller company, I don't know, like a free travel to your uh, to your uh, HQ or something. So, of course whatever you can afford. But yeah, that's just another idea. That's awesome. I'm impressed when people take a lot of note and research on other brands, like in your anecdote about Nike, I think it shows a lot of wherewithal and education in the field at large when they're looking at some other company and saying, you know, this worked for them. How can I translate this to my company a little bit? That shows that you don't really just do this for a paycheck a little bit. So I am interested and how you kind of took six years in studying geology and converted that into being an e-commerce founder and entrepreneur. Give me that art a little bit. Yeah, sure. It's it's funny because, yeah, indeed, I, I studied geology for six years here in Europe. At the beginning, I was shy to share it, you know, because it's so different. And, and people, maybe they think that, what the hell, how did you become a marketer? And you must be a terrible marketer if you studied geology. But uh Recently, I started embracing it more because nobody has this past in marketing. You know, I I, I was young. I, I went to the uni. I wanted to have a career in a, the petroleum industry, in the oil industry. I finished it in 2016, 17, and uh, I couldn't find a job. Oil prices were very down back then. It was more about layoffs back then than hiring in the industry. Yeah, I just looked around and uh, I actually found Upwork, the freelancer platform. Uh, I applied for uh, small gigs first as a copywriter. And that's how I got started. Since then, it's been it's been a snowball, really. Like uh, we got uh, or I got bigger, bigger projects. After a while, I hired people and uh, we became an agency. No, that's amazing. And that's kind of one of those self-made stories. Just to pivot a little bit on your website, you essentially claim that I don't want to use this word if if it's not explicit. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you essentially guarantee brands that it'll only take 21 days to see the lifetime value of their customers increase by 20 to 50%. First question, is that a guarantee? Yeah, great question. So yeah, our setup usually takes three weeks. Yeah, we can see these in, uh, increase. Uh, one thing I would add, so we don't guarantee this to everyone, 
we have a process to filter uh, people and, and businesses if uh, we think it's achievable there for their business. But, you know, if we can uh, see that the answer is yes. When we have the first call, uh, we always set a goal for uh, every business that uh, what is a realistic goal we can get. And we set that goal together with the client and uh, we try to achieve that. And then once we achieved it, we go beyond. We set new goals, but we are very goal driven. So we don't just do the job and that's it, but we go for the results. And my follow up question to that is how did you come up with those parameters? You know, for example, 20 to 50%, 21 days. How, how did you come up with kind of those milestones a little bit? Yeah, sure. So actually, I'm not the person who, who does it. Our sales guy does it. And uh, the beginning guy was very shy that uh, he will, uh, you know, screw it up because that's a big, big uh, promise. And if we don't keep the promise, that's a big problem. But actually, he's been amazing with this. So we hit the goals, I think, around 90% of the times, which is crazy to think about. So we hit the goals that he sets for the team and I just watch it. <laughs> and... Uh, I think the key really is just that we've been doing this for a long time and we have a lot of data. We work with more than 160 companies now. Yeah, I also asked my team, like, how you come up with these goals? And even they cannot explain it too well, you know, like, uh, yeah, we just have the experience. We know the niches. We know if they have this and that, what we can expect to happen. And, and they just guess the number. So yeah, I think it's just all about experience. And after it becomes your second nature to come up with the goals. Yeah, yeah. Once you've been doing that process enough where you're setting people down, you're asking the right questions. Do brands come up with the goals more often or are you coming up with the goals? Or is it is it really just a, a total yin and yang process? Yeah, it's somewhat yin and yang. But uh, I think we can say that we come up with the goals okay. more, more precisely. Uh, many brands, they don't know what they can expect, though. So they tell us that, hey, you are the experts, uh, come up with something, some numbers, and we do. Uh, it's honestly, it's rare that they do. Uh, yeah, many of them, they don't even know what numbers to, what KPI to follow, like this revenue number or open rates, engagement rates. So they don't even know that. So yeah, we, we have them quite much. I would say rather us who come up with the, these numbers. What KPI should people be be following? I've talked to a, a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions on that. Yeah, that's a huge topic, right? And uh, yeah, so we usually come up with revenue numbers because end of the day, this is what matters, you know, and the profit. Uh, many businesses, they don't share their profits, so we don't bother them, but we, we focus on revenue. Another big topic nowadays is attribution. Like, okay, your software says that... Uh, email, SMS, these channels, they made, I don't know, 30% of revenue, but the attribution can be changed. How we, what's the base of that? But usually we have no issues with that. So the client, uh, you know, trust the software we use and, uh, and we just follow those numbers. So also I think we are conservative in terms of attribution. So we uh, attribute sales, um, for example, for email, I know it's a bit technical, but for email, if somebody uh, opened an email and they buy within five days, it's an email sale. But on the sixth day, they are not anymore. 
But I know guys, agencies where they extend it to two months. Somebody opens an email and buys after 59 days, it's still an email sale. And mm, I don't know, that's that's very not conservative, right? Do you think they're trying to bolster or prove to their clients that this email service is working by extending that time frame a little bit? So it kind of makes their... They're kind of fudging their numbers is what I'm hearing you say, honestly. Yeah, know? yeah, definitely, definitely. And and that's why attribution is a huge topic nowadays because of course everyone wants to see that their software their agency makes the money you know when i can see a business uh, they use five different software tools five different agencies and i check the dashboard of each they claim these numbers i add i add up the numbers and then i take a look at the bank account of the business or their total revenue what they tell me and it's half of that or one third of that. <laughs> yeah, everyone wants to say that, yeah, my agency, my software made the money. Nobody is really true there or right there. That's why it's a big topic. But I think on our end, we are conservative. I think that's the right way in the long run. Because I can see companies saying that we made 70, 60% of revenue of the business from email. But uh, I don't know, somebody must be screwed there. That's a too high number. What is a realistic number that people should be pulling in from from email? I mean, I hate to be asking for generalizations, but you've been doing it for six years. Email is kind of your bread and butter. What should, on average, an average company's pull be from email? Is it 40%? I mean, what should it be? Of course, the first answer is it depends. It depends on a few things, but let's say... Average 20, 30, 40%, uh, maybe 50%. But when it's more than that, uh, I'm very skeptical, like 60, 70. If somebody has those numbers, I ask them, okay, how much you spend on uh, acquiring new customers? Because looks like everyone comes back again and again from email. But how about new customers? You don't spend them, you don't want them, or or why why it's so low that you know the other half. And when it comes to attribution, right? I think that there's kind of two different trains of thought. And that's either to focus energy on the stuff that's working and make sure that that's perfect. Make sure that the let, let's say my company is at an attribution of, um, you know, 60 to 70% of people are coming in through email. I make sure that that is running like a well-oiled machine because that's guaranteed money right there. That's kind of option A or where it's option B, where it's like my email is only like 10, 15, 20%. I need to bolster that. So I guess my succinct version of that question to you, Daniel, is do you focus on the stuff that's working well and make sure that it's continuing to work well? Or do you focus on the stuff that isn't working as well and try to get it to the position that you're happy with? Interesting question. I would say we focus on the things you are the good at, you know? So first of all, I, I'm not the e-commerce business owner. I don't do all marketing there. So they can decide about the strategy. We don't do their whole strategy. We just do that part that we are good at which is retention. And we focus on what we are the best at, you know. But I, I don't know if that answers your question, by the way. But I can see this many times that uh, we achieve good numbers with the email already. And uh, the problem is the acquisition side, which is not our job. But then we try to refer partners, other agencies or experts, and, and help them with that. 
because the two things are tied together. So they need new customers that they can retain later and we can help them with the second. Just to kind of switch gears a, a little bit in terms of the other services you offer, as you mentioned, the value of push notifications earlier. And I'm, and I'm curious if you could kind of explain that a little bit. Is that simply push notification I get from getting an email or getting an SMS message? Or, or what is that specifically that you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. email and SMS are different things and, and, and push is a third thing. Now we are talking about those messages that comes up on your phone, you know, the, the push notifications. Yeah, it's, I, I know many people think it's annoying and, and it, it, it is, it can be, uh, but it makes a shit ton of money. So, uh, you know, it works well. And also we can do it in a not too annoying way. So same with pop-ups and, and SMS, uh, with all marketing channels, really. But what we do, so we use uh, push owl for this. In most cases, it works with Shopify. We set up a few automations. So if somebody goes to the checkout with an item and they leave, they send them, we send them three abandoned cart messages in uh, three days. They get this on the phone. That's one example. Or if somebody buys, we send them two messages. We try to upsell new things. So these are the automations. And we also send out manual campaigns especially when there is a holiday. Uh, let's say it's Black Friday, we send out uh, three push uh, messages in, in one week uh, with different offers. So, you know, these are small messages, short, very short messages. Uh, everyone has to opt in on the website. So they give their consent to receive those messages. And, uh, and after we send these, I would say it's not a huge... Uh, Rainmaker, you know, so email SMS much bigger, loyal, even loyalty is much bigger, but it's a kind of easy money because not many companies do it. It's uh, very cheap to send push to people. We have a case study. We made, I think, $50,000 for a, it, it's like 1% of their revenue, one or 2%. So it's not huge, but it's uh, very profitable. And it's just really money found on the table. Because that's something that you automate, you know, it's, it's the only, I don't know, kind of manual labor is to sit there and automate the service and write the copy so that that one or 2% that's coming in is literally just one person that's writing copy at the end of the day. Yeah. We had one guy from India. I, I asked him, he seemed to be, you know, interested and smart enough. And I told him, Hey, if you could have this client look into this, then every it's a win-win for everyone. And he learned it. He did it. I think he still does it. So we even have a video about this on YouTube. It's almost one hour, a tutorial, and he shares how everyone can do it. So yeah, push is really money found on the table. Very cool. That's something that I haven't done enough research on or talked to enough people about is, is push notifications. Kind of to pivot to a different area of services that we haven't talked about yet is um, landing pages and the value of landing pages. So on your website, you pretty much claim a, a 30% conversion rate increases your revenue by 30%. Is that accurate? Is, is that true? The higher up the scale you go, whether it's 80%, it gives you 80% revenue. I mean, give it to me straight. I have to revisit uh, this page. <laughs> I don't want to claim too much. But yeah, in simple terms, if nothing else changes, yes. So if you have the same traffic, uh, same price, same everything, 
you increase the converge by 30%. Yes, your revenue increased by 30%, but in reality, it's more complex. So, you know, many variables, they change and everything. I think if you increase revenue by, uh, sorry, conversion by 30%, your revenue won't increase by the same, maybe less, but uh, pretty substantial. So like, let's say 15%, 20 I think those are still huge numbers for a, for a business. Yeah, landing pages are probably the first thing that uh, I would uh, restructure on a, on a website. And how often should someone be changing that? Is that something that people should only change when there's a new product to launch or a new campaign that they're starting? Or is that something that should be consistently updated once a week? So first of all, in an ideal world, I think everyone should do it uh, regularly and, and not just with new products, but uh, because you can always improve, you know, so better copy, better design, better layout, better images, many, many things. There are long checklists with these things, how it can be improved. I know everyone has limited resources, so it really depends. It's not the number one thing if you are a small business. I would say in the top three uh, when it comes to marketing. So acquisition, your uh, website conversion and your retention, these three. So, so it's there. If you have the time or the people, then uh, make sure you update these regularly and improve them. Great. I think that's good, solid advice. One of the last things I wanted to talk about was before we pressed the big red record button, we were talking about your experience as a podcaster and how you've done over, over 200 episodes. So I'm curious how you got into it what's kind of like your dynamic. I'd just love to hear a little bit about your experience as a, a podcast host. Yeah, so now I started this on more than two years ago now. Now we are over 200 episodes. I learned so much about this and uh, I, I think I'm, much, I'm so much more confident with this than back then. I was super shy. You know, at the beginning, I thought that I was quite naive. I thought that I would be some next Joe Rogan or some mainstream guy. You know, everyone wants to learn email marketing. After a while, pretty soon, I realized that's not the case. It's a very niche topic, even if I want to make it fun. Yeah, so I think now the biggest goal is not really becoming mainstream or as many listeners as we can get, but more about getting the right type of listeners. So uh, decision makers, bigger businesses, maybe getting deeper in uh, the knowledge stuff but also sharing stories, you know, human stories, relatable stories, a combination of both. Also making it not too long, not too short. I don't want to make it just like a quick tips and hacks type of podcast. I want deeper than that, but still not like a three hour long uh, conversation because I don't know, maybe at one point, but not now. Yeah, also it's a lot of time. So. Yeah, it can be time consuming, but I think there's a lot of value in just kind of like sitting there and connecting with someone while helping other people listening. It's can be simple, but profound. So Daniel, when people come on the show, I have one final question I always ask them, and that's about how e-commerce professionals are operating 24, 7, 365. It can be extremely stress inducing and to promote good mental health and work-life harmony, what are some of your hobbies and interests that you do outside of e-commerce to establish that work-life harmony? Yeah, that's definitely important. I just turned uh, 31 last year and uh, over 30, I realized it again and again that it's so important. Yeah, sport is a big thing for me. So I, I go to the gym, 
Uh, after this, I, I, I'm going running today. So I do both weightlifting, cardio five times a week. I like cooking as well. That's kind of a hobby for me. I, I like traveling as well and just meeting people, uh, either business or not business related. So yeah, traveling is, is big for me as well. Yeah, mostly these. I mean, nothing crazy, you know. I don't play instruments. I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't uh, do bungee jumping. <laughs> so yeah, mostly these. And all that thing is, all that stuff is just not yet. Maybe in, you know, two to 10 years time, you'll be a bungee jumping pianist. Who knows? Yeah, I will shoot a podcast while I'm bungee jumping. <laughs> that would be fun. And talk about email marketing. <laughs> yeah, upside down. Well, Daniel, it's, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the agency. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, everyone. And thanks for the opportunity. I'd like to thank my guest, Daniel Budai, for joining me on the show and come back on Thursday when I talk with Christina Flashen, the CEO and founder of Pandium, an e-commerce platform to better build, launch, and promote native software integrations. For more information about Daniel, you can connect with him on LinkedIn, subscribe to his YouTube channel at The Daniel Budai, spelled B-U-D-A-I, or listen to his podcast, The Ecom Show, wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about Budai Media, you can check out their website, thebudaimedia.com. That's our show. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then. 